Talk Radio for Inquisitive People. Solace Radio, Bonavista, Colorado. Well, shalom to you and welcome to Wild Branch Ministry. I am Brad Scott and for the next 90 minutes, we're going to talk about a subject that I've roasted in other tape series. We've talked about it very briefly and I've just simply decided to and do a little more detail about the progression or the evolution or the change that the quote assembly of God's people, i.e. otherwise known as the church, has uh, that has taken place in the church in the last uh, 2,000 years. It's, it's our contention based upon the history and based upon the, the doctrines and traditions and liturgy uh, of the um, modern Christianity today as opposed to the doctrines and liturgy and traditions as they are recorded in the scriptures, that there's a great go fix between these two things and that the church, the body, the assembly of God's people has evolved and changed dramatically over the last 2,000 years, has changed the phrases and changed the terminology and the liturgy and the, and the feasts and the Sabbaths, and that this is not something that any one person or any one organization has done, but rather it is a, a slow evolution over the years. Uh, before we begin, let me remind you that we are called Wild Branch Ministry based upon Romans chapter 11, in which Paul clearly teaches that uh, the wild olive tree which I believe I have come from, and many that are listening to my voice, those who consider or at least believe for all intents and purposes that we come from Gentile background, are grafted into their tree, and uh, the natural tree, and it's not the other way around. And you're going to see from uh, as we go through the history of the church, which is not a pretty thing, that the opposite has been taught, that to be consistent with Paul's uh, analogy of a tree to be consistent with what the Christian church teaches, we would have to have those in the natural branches being grafted into a brand new tree called Christianity. And of course, that's not what is not what has been presented in the scriptures. And you're going to see historically that that's not true either. A lot of the things we're going to read are a matter of documentation, uh, writings of early quotes from early church fathers and their writings and so forth, and some other historians quotes, Eusebius and so forth. And during the course of these comments and uh, excerpts and quotations, uh, you're going to be reading a lot, or I'm going to be reading a lot of passages that, of course, are filled with redefined words, redefined phrases, and so forth, that make it difficult to grasp what's going on because the way the scriptures define the word has, of course, been changed uh, over the centuries. And so let me just give you a couple of examples before we begin. We're going to use the word Jewish a lot, for instance. Well, how the word is defined and understood in scriptures, that word Jew or Jewish, is not how it has gone through its changes throughout the 2,000 years. Most of the world has accepted the myth that the Jews and Israel are synonymous things, that Israel is the Jews and the Jews is are Israel. And, of course, scripturally we know, you don't have to read very far in Scripture to see that that's not true, that uh, Israel is uh, comprised of 12 tribes. And in those 12 tribes, 
there is but one that is Judah, which is where we get the word Jew from. Judah is only one tribe, scripturally. The rest of Israel is the other tribes. Someone from Gad is not a Jew. Someone from the tribe of Asher is not a Jew. However, those who are Jewish are Israel because they're part of the 12 tribes of Israel. So many times in Scripture you will see the tribe of Judah or the house of Judah referred to as Israel, and that's rightfully so because they are. But Israel is not the Jewish tribe. Israel is much more than that. For the sake of this paper, because I'm going to be quoting from a lot of other people who don't have that understanding, who are church fathers who have already begun to change uh, the nomenclature. For the sake of our study, when I talk about Jewish, I'm talking about those who have, whether, believe, whether they believe in Messiah or not, those who have uh, grown up and follow the Torah and the Old Testament laws and the feast and the Sabbaths, things that we attribute uh, to the Jewish people, which is, of course, synonymous with all of Israel, all 12 tribes, not just Judah. And uh, so when I talk about Jewish, I'm talking about the way things were in, in the scriptures, the way they are given according to the scriptures. When I talk about the Gentiles and the church and, and so forth, I'm talking about how things became. I'm talking about people who did not come from a background of being raised in the Tanakh, raised according to the word of God. I'm talking about Gentiles from all persuasions all over the earth, who more than likely, many of them are part of the house of Israel that was prophesied to be scattered throughout the world, but do or do not know it. Whether they know it or not is irrelevant. The fact is that it is comprised of a doctrinal process and a thinking process that's outside of Torah and the feasts and the Sabbaths, for instance, and have begun to Christianize, and you'll understand what that means as we go, uh, the ways of God. And so I want those things kind of understood uh, before. The reason why this is difficult, of course, is because in the transition of the assembly of God's people, through the time of the Messiah actually walking upon the earth, and then those post-years after the Messiah, terminology and phrases and things began to change and take upon different meanings. And we began to depart and leave and forsake our Hebrew roots. And so things that before the time of the Messiah were just God's ways and God's things, after the time of the Messiah, they became Jewish ways and Jewish things, and that the Messiah came to end all that by his death and resurrection on that tree, and then after that, there were Christian ways and Christian thinking and Christian documents and Christian sermons and so forth. And there began, uh, began a separation from all things Jewish. Now, again, all things Jewish meant all things concerned with the law and Torah and the feast and the Sabbath, i.e. the Old Testament. And you're going to see that progression uh, as we go. There are three scriptures I want to read before we begin, and we're going to get, actually just get into this history. And uh, I will go as quickly as I can because we have a lot of material uh, to get into. But there's three scriptures I want you to keep in mind before we begin. Keep them in the back of your mind. First, um, uh, The first one is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1 and 2, which says, and this is Paul, Rav Shaul speaking, he says, Be ye followers of me, 
even as I also am of the Messiah. And so right off, right off the bat, we learned that that Paul from the tribe of Benjamin, which was considered synonymous with Jew because the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin went south and were both collectively known as the house of Judah. He says, follow me, a Jew, as I follow the Messiah, a Jew. A Jew, biblically, is one from the tribe of Judah. Both of those were, from, excuse me, from the house of Judah. Both of those are from the house of Judah. So then he goes on to say, I praise you, brothers, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. And the ordinances in the Hebrew is uh, masor. Masor means traditions, the things that are passed down from one generation to the next. And Paul just described to us how they're passed down. He got it from the Messiah. We're to follow Shaul. And Shaul followed the Messiah. And we learn when we read all the Gospels that the Messiah did all things that his father has shown him. And so we have us following Paul, Paul following the Messiah, Messiah following the Father. And we're going to see that that tradition, that biblical Messiah, if you will, passed down from the very beginning, was broken and changed. Traditions were changed, and that was prophesied to be so in the scriptures as we go through the history. Now, keep that one in mind. Another one I want you to keep in mind is Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, where Daniel, in talking about the beast, the little horn, it rises up. Speaking of this little horn, he says, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change the times and the law. Some, some have times and the seasons in there. So we know that one of the attributes of the anti-Messiah, in the Hebrew called the Mashiach Tachat, or the instead of Christ, that one of his attributes is that he will change God's ways. And the reason why that is so is, you, is because that is the way you change people's behavior. My premise here is that if you change theology... Because all cultures, no matter where they're at, and whether there's five people that start a society or there's five million people that start a society, no matter where you are on this planet, no matter what country you live in or what area you live in, everybody has a view of the deity or deities. Everybody has a religion. Everybody has a view of something far greater than themselves and far superior than themselves. And that view and how they view that superiority, that superior one, determines how they look at their society, determines their philosophy of life and how they think and how they look at marriage and how they view government and, and how they look at, at, at violence and punishment, how they look at marriage and raising children, how they look at their dietary what they uh, laws, what they eat what they celebrate. So how they view the deities determines how they look at their life. And, of course, how they look at their life determines how they behave. So we begin with theology, which determines philosophy, which determines behavior. And, of course, the, one of the very first things that begins to take place, as you're going to see us go through this history, 
is that the theology began to change in an effort, an effort by men that has been the same since the very beginning. Because from the very beginning, Adam said, God gave one law. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, forsook that law, laid that commandment aside. And, of course, now we have the fall of man. From the very beginning, it has been man's desire to disobey. And that laying aside, because we know that, that sin is transgression of the law. Yochanan, in his epistle, first epistle of Yochanan, chapter 3, teaches us that sin is transgression of Torah. And so that laying aside of the laws and the subsequent chaos that, that uh, comes from that is called the Adamic nature. That's the reason why it's called the Adamic nature is because it came from Adam who started it. And so it's always been man's nature to forsake the law. It's also been, and it's, this is a little more subtle and, and sometimes tougher to teach in the text, but it's also been man's desire ever since there's been people who were, quote, non-Jews, if you will, non-Israel, to hate Israel, to hate the people of God, to hate anyone from those 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes culturally, I mean, as far as the world is concerned, the, the, the Catholic, if you will, the universal thought for the last two centuries has been, as I said before, that Jews and Israel are synonymous one with the other. So most people, when they say Jew, they're thinking all of Israel. Again, that's not biblical, and that creates all kinds of chaos. But for the sake of this tape, we're going to see it that way so that you can understand what some of these writers were saying as we quote them. And so it's always been you, a separation from these people called the, uh, the Jews or Israel and a hatred for them. And the first thing you do is begin to teach, change the theology. Why? Because as I said, any society's philosophy and behavior uh, starts with their view of the deity, of that which is the, the superior one or ones to them. And so it's a natural thing to do that. We are going to go on now to Bereshit chapter 12, verses, verse 3. And this is the only other one I want you to keep in mind as we go. These are probably the only scriptures we're going to read because we're going to go through the history of the church. But keep in mind in Bereshit chapter 12 that when Abraham is called by God to go to, quote, the promised land, we are told that in verse 2, and I will make of you, that is Abraham and his uh, descendants, a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless you, and I will curse them that curse you, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Those who choose to be in Abraham are the ones who will bless and be blessed. And those who turn away from that uh, will be cursed. And I want you to keep that in mind as we go through the scripture. Let's begin with a couple of facts. The book of Acts. You have to ask yourself a question. And that's really the only question I want you to think, uh, one of the only questions I want you to think about as we go through this. And that is, what we are saying, does it violate scripture? Or is what you're about to learn simply violate the tradition and teachings of the Orthodox Christian Church, the historical Christian Church? We need to stand for truth and not follow the doctrines of the early church fathers. I'm not here to defend Christianity. I'm not here to defend Judaism. 
We're here to defend Scripture and the truth of Scripture. And if that if that violates your traditions, I don't know what to tell you. But we will not violate Scripture as we go through this. You have to ask yourself, has the assembly of people been following the pattern set for us in the book of Acts? Remember the book of Acts. Another word uh, for that in the Hebrew is the book of deeds, things that people do. What you have recorded right after the Gospels. A book written by Luke describing this is how the followers of the Messiah act following his resurrection. These are the things they did. We can, we can argue all night long about what they said and what it means, but this is a record of what they did. And we have a, a series out called The Church in the Book of Acts. And in that series, I go through the whole book of Acts, almost verse by verse, showing that the assembly of God's people, otherwise known as the, ch- as the church, which began way back in Bettersheet, not at Acts chapter 2, the assembly of God's people as you read the book of Acts, kept the Sabbath, worshipped on the Sabbath, shared on the Sabbath, rested on the Sabbath, kept Yahweh's Shabbat. They celebrated all the feasts of the Lord, and they celebrated no other no other feast but those. They met on the Sabbath, they worshipped on the Sabbath, they kept the dietary laws, and they remained as Israel has always been. The difference being, of course, that there, there was now... No need to sacrifice for sin because Messiah came not to die for the law. He came to die for our sins. And so, therefore, those things that are part of the atonement for our sins were transferred to him. So it's not really even sacrifices and a temple and a priesthood that ended. None of those three things ended. It was who was the sacrifice. Who is the priesthood and who is the temple now? And those are the three things that have to do with atonement for sin. A sacrifice, i.e. the Messiah. A temple, a place of sacrifice. And a priesthood, a mediatorship. And all three of those things we now are and are part of. Messiah became our eternal sacrifice. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we are a royal priesthood. Those three things have to do with sin. When someone broke the commandments of God, they recompensed in other ways. Sacrifices are only for your reconciliation back for God, back to God. Sacrifices did not satisfy Torah as far as uh, man's uh, love for man is concerned. If you stole something, yes, yes, when it came time to sacrifice, you sacrificed for reconciliation back to a God who you have who you have offended. But sacrifice did not satisfy you having to recompense the person you stole from. That remained intact. And so what we're going to see, what you see when you read the book of Acts, is the assembly of God having a change of who the sacrifice and the temple and the priesthood was. There is absolutely no change whatsoever in God's instructions and commandments, i.e. Torah. It's only the reconciliation for sin that the Messiah did on that tree. And that's an important thing to see. So as we see the, quote, early, we call them the early church, but it's just another phase 
of the, of the assembly of people now that the Messiah has come. Redemption, eternal redemption has come and no more sacrifices daily in the temple. No more temple, no more priesthood, but rather we are the priesthood now. As we see things begin to evolve, of course, obviously, the disciples and the apostles begin to die. Okay, They went through various horrendous deaths and so forth, and Paul is, uh, is killed and beheaded and so forth. And what we have basically by the end of the first century is we have Yochanan, John, still alive on the, uh, on the uh, Isle of Patmos, and, of course, he writes uh, near the end of the first century the book of Hegelut, and he writes... Uh, his epistles and gospels and so forth are done at that time. And we have Jerusalem, which has fallen. It has been destroyed. We have really a confusion and chaos um, among the Orthodox Jew, if you will. In other words, those um, comparable to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so forth, having their city and their temple destroyed now. We have those called Nazarenes or those of the way, which is what Scripture calls uh, believers in the Messiah. They were all called Nazarenes or those of the way. And then eventually you begin to get a lot of Gentiles coming into this same way. Up until the first century, really no one's called a Christian. Christian is is a pejorative term for the most part. It's what a lot of the non-Christians called them. There's nothing in Scripture that says that we are that anybody was to be called a Christian. That was something that they were called by the other people. And so we have basically what we call the church today still part of mainstream Judaism. And what I mean by that is the Jews at that time considered this another sect of Judaism. They didn't like them. They thought they were teaching a false Messiah. Uh, they hated them because they were teaching the resurrection, especially the Sadducees who believed in no resurrection. And so we have hatred among them, and we have them being killed. Uh, we have Paul giving orders for many of them to be killed. But it was really... Not until we get into the second century that we have a separation take place, and that's because uh, that's going to take place because of the Bar Kokhba uh, uh, revolt. In about 117 A.D., uh, now that we have no temple, no Jerusalem, the Roman Emperor Hadrian built a temple to Jupiter in Jerusalem, and he renamed the city. So the first thing we do, of course, is we start renaming, retitling, giving new uh, redefinitions to things. You change a word and you redefine the word. And so the first thing we do is we get out that Jewish word, Jerusalem, and we replace it with a pagan or a Greek term or a Western Hellenized term, and that is Aelia Capitolina, turning Jerusalem into a Roman city. Now, demoralized after uh, a loss of, quote, Jewish national religious life, which had begun with the destruction of the Sep Second Temple in 70 AD, the Jewish people now, now these are not the Nazarenes or those of the way, but they looked for a Messiah to save them from the oppression of Rome. They see all these things happen uh, to their city, and they believe that the Messiah is soon coming. And so they were really excited about of course, they don't believe in Yeshua as the Messiah. They're really excited about Messiah coming. So in 132 A.D., Simon Bar Kokhba uh, was endorsed uh, by the leading Jewish intellectual at the time, a man by the name of Rabbi Akiba, to be the promised Messiah. Okay, now we got excitement going on. And in 135 A.D., Bar Kokhba, this false Messiah, which turned out to be a false Messiah, led a revolt against Rome. Now, the Nazarene Jews, that is the, the believers, 
okay, those of the way, the Nazarenes, refused to join in the revolt. Well, why? Well, because they didn't believe this, this Bar Kokhba, uh, was, was a, was the Messiah. Yeshua was the Messiah. And so they're going to begin to separate themselves from the traditional Judaism, if, if I could say that. So a separation begins to take place because of the destruction of the uh, temple and because of the rising up of this false Messiah. So they refused to fight under this banner. And so this resulted in the bloodshed between Jews on both sides. And by the end of the second century AD, a wedge was driven between the Nazarene movement and mainstream Judaism. Now, what you're also going to begin to see at the same time is there's going to be a separation between the influx of Gentile Christians. And what I mean by that is Gentile believers, I should say. What I mean by that is those who are coming from Corinth and the Gentile backgrounds and believing on the Messiah. And what we're going to see is that this movement, the Nazarene movement, those of the way, those of the first 12 disciples and everything, is primarily, it's based upon Scripture, upon the Old Testament. We can call it Jewish, call it whatever you want, but that was the basis and foundation. Torah was obeyed, Torah was taught, the feasts were observed. Shabbat was kept, and there was no Sunday morning go to meeting. But this is the the background of the influx of Gentiles coming in, which just overran these, quote, Jewish believers in this, in this Nazarene movement, began to drag their traditions and their days of worshiping. Sunday was the common day of worship among the pagans. And they drugged, and so the Sabbath ended up getting changed to Sunday, which we'll talk about in a little more detail in a few minutes. And the, uh, the feast began to go out the window. But the first thing you have to do is change terminology. You have to disassociate yourself with the Jew, which has been the nature of mankind outside of God's people from the very beginning. This is nothing new. It's not a new movement, the hatred of the Jewish people. It's very common. The Bar Kokhba a revolt didn't work. We have God's ways becoming Jewish ways. We have God's things becoming called Jewish things now. And we have a whole new religion springing up in the world called Christianity. You can just you can go to just about any historical chart. I've been. I I'm I playing a band and I, and I've been in churches in the past where you, where we go to play and there's this big poster on the wall and right on the poster it says the beginning of Christianity and it's got you know 32 A.D. there founder of Christianity uh, Jesus Christ and uh, all these silly little statements. So I'm not saying something from a bias. I mean, this is what the traditional church teaches, is that Christianity has now begun. A brand new religion pops up, and we give it a name, and it's called Christianity. So as more and more Gentiles join the, the this, you know, Jewish movement, if you will, the actual Jewish president becomes progressively less important. Uh, Christianity didn't officially take a stance against Judaism, Really, until the about the late into to the third century, but divisions and differences of opinion began already in the first century. As a result of of Shaul, Rav Shaul's mission to the Gentiles, the ethnic composition of the of this quote Nazarene movement uh, began to rapidly rapidly change from a basic Jewish majority to now a Gentile majority. And of course, they're going to drag all their backgrounds in. 
and their feast and their Sabbaths into this. You, you, you can even see this when you read Paul's letters. You can see that when Gentiles come in, there's confusion. That you know, but Paul has to give directions in all of his letters. Now, you know, this is the what you've been doing, and this is you know how how you got to do now. And then, and there was some confusion as to how we should act. You know, we've got these people uh, eating things sacrificed to idols in the marketplaces and so forth. And is is this what we're supposed to do? Are we not supposed to do this? And and there was some confusion. That's why they had that council with James and so forth. Is is because we've got. Not only confusion among Gentiles as to how they should act, especially after listening to Paul and Kepha and so forth preach, they're probably thinking to themselves, okay, well, I'm a new creation now and I, I've become this Messiah that we're following is Jewish and, and Paul is Jewish and he hasn't departed from the feast and he hasn't departed from Torah and we're supposed to follow him and, 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 and yet this is what we've been doing, so what are we supposed to do? And, and it creates confusion. So Paul has to give directions to these people. Now, what complicates it even more is you have many Jewish believers also not quite getting it yet. And they're coming in and say, well, yeah, you have to believe in the Messiah, you have to believe in Yeshua. But you also, in order to be saved, quote, saved, you also have to obey all the commandments of God and be circumcised. You know, and, and the disciples respond to this by going, what do you mean you have to obey all the commandments and be circumcised in order to be redeemed back to God? Our fathers couldn't do that. Our fathers couldn't obey all the commandments to be saved. So what makes you think the Gentiles can, can obey all the commandments to be saved if our own fathers couldn't do that? That's really all that Acts chapter 15 is saying. If we couldn't, if the best of the best of the best couldn't do it, why do you expect these Gentiles who have no background of Torah whatsoever to keep Torah to be saved. So Paul had to constantly come back saying, you know, it's grace. It's grace that you're delivered. Torah is for our life, how we should live. Don't get those two things confused. We're saved by his gift from God. Now we are his workmanship. Now we're created in the Messiah on two good works. Now don't go do the works because you have the power to do so. And there was a lot of confusion about this, and hence we have all these letters from Paul. Now, in the second century A.D., many of the, quote, early church fathers, sometimes we call them apostolic fathers, but began to make statements which further separated the Gentiles from other, everything Jewish. And now we're going to have these, these Gentile leaders teaching things in order to separate themselves from anything Jewish. And this is, again, this has been the base nature of man from the very beginning. Uh, Non-Jewish doctrines began to be developed, which became the foundational beliefs of Christianity. And we need to face that fact, that many of the practices and the traditions and the things we celebrate and do today do not have a basis in Scripture at all. They have a very good basis in the teachings of some of these early church fathers and mostly from the Catholic Church, which the Catholic Church admits to. Catholic Church, we're going to read here in a little while, admits to having changed uh, Sabbath to Sunday. The Catholic Church admits to having discarded the, the seven feasts of Yahweh and replaced them with Christian, Christ, Christmas and Easter. They admit to having done that. Their basis for it? Well, they base it upon Peter, the first uh, apostle, 
and that he was the first pope, and that the church uh, rested on him, and that and that uh, apostolic uh, popehood, if you will, was passed down uh, through the Catholic Church, and the church, by the fact that they have the keys of hell and death, and the keys to the kingdom, can change whatever they want to change, because they're the church. That is direct, almost a direct, that's a terrible paraphrase, but it's almost a direct quote from what the Catholic Church says. And a Protestants, Martin Luther simply picked that idea up. He didn't nail everything to that door, the Catholic Church, and he drug a lot of these things in the Protestant uh, Reformation. Now, the church sought to conquer the synagogue. What we're going to do now is we're going to get rid of the damnable Jews. And this is going to be the history of the church. So get ready to hear things that are going to make you angry and you're not going to like, but it's a matter of fact. The uh, the church considered this, uh, the Jewish believers to be stubbornly clinging to their ancestral faith rather than shedding all this stuff and following the newfound religion called Christian, uh, Christianity. So frustrated and bitter, the church fathers uh, set out to prove that the Old Testament was a legalistic, dead, and superseded religion by the New Testament now. So by reversing the biblical image of the Jews, the church could claim to be the new Israel, or the, the new Jacob. Whereas the Jews were relegated to Esau and Cain, the murderers of, uh, of their brothers. Israel was portrayed as being blind and divorced by God. And this theology of replacement, which evolved into a theology of displacement, as we're going to see, stated that the Jews had forfeited what God had given them, and now Christianity was the new heir of promises and blessings of God. The Jews, however, could keep the curses. Now, in the epistle, in the epistle of Barnabas, for, for instance, written around 30, 135 A.D., aha, just at the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt, this replacement theology is clearly stated. Referring to the Mosaic Covenant, Barnabas writes, and I quote, Indeed, that is the Mosaic Covenant, it is ours, meaning the church, Christians. For Moses had hardly received it when they, that is the Jews, forfeited it forever. Now the church did not claim the biblical commandments in a literal sense. And they were going to turn around and say, well, you know, this Mosaic Covenant is ours, but these things that are written, we're not to take them literally. See, the, the church is, is confronted with a problem now. We cannot claim to be this new Israel if all the things that are for Israel are all the things that we're trying to get rid of and the, and the very things we disdain. So they came up with a new theology with the help of Augustine and others called making, uh, spiritualizing and allegorizing the texts. Catholic Church is famous for this. Catholic Church even teaches that, that Noah's Ark and all that stuff didn't really happen. Those are just, those are just stories for us to understand the heart of God. And this is why theistic evolution and all kinds of evolutionary ideas crept into the, the quote church in the quote uh, age of enlightenment, which we're going to get to here pretty soon. Because you could just allegorize the text. And let me tell you something, my friends. If you begin to take and allegorize all kinds of types and so forth were come up with. If you began to spiritualize and allegorize the text, you can pretty much teach whatever you want. Because how can someone be proved wrong if they're taking the spiritual concept of it? Well, what what rules of hermeneutics, uh, what rules of interpretation 
uh, are there to go by when it comes to uh, spiritualizing what it says. Well, I know it says this literally here, but spiritually it means you have no rules. It's helter-skelter. It's anything goes. And, of course, that is precisely what has happened that has called, caused over 7,000 different denominations in the Christian church today. It's because we're all just spiritualizing the text however we want to. They perceived the literal as being only a shadow of what was to come, being that uh, that the Messiah had completed and abolished the law. So therefore, if he abolished the law, but yet we're Israel and the law is for Israel, then we've got to do something with the law. We've got to do something with the Old Testament. Of course, a character named Marcion, who lived about, about 125 A.D., he was, even though he was considered a heretic uh, by many people later on in the church, many did not really perceive him to be a heretic at the time. Marcion was basically teaching that the Old Testament was for Jews and that he was vying for a, a canon that had only certain books of the New Testament. No Old Testament, because that was for Jews. That was, as a matter of fact, an entirely different God. He taught that there was the Demiurge, the God of the Old Testament, the blood God, the, the, the bloody, violent, judgmental God, the Demiurge of the Old Testament. And then you had the nice, gentle, kind, shepherd, pat him on the head, Jesus Christ, God of the New Testament. But there were certain books in the Brit Kadashah that were not worthy to be included in the canon as well because they were, quote, too Jewish. Uh, one of those was the Book of Acts, written by Luke, which he considered to be a Gentile. Book of Acts, too Jewish. Why did he think the Book of Acts is too Jewish? Because they're still doing Jewish things. We got the 12 disciples, and we have 3,000 being saved, we have 5,000 being saved, and then we have Cornelius being saved, then we have Gentiles overrunning the church, Acts chapter 15, and we got this whole story of the beginning of the church, but yet they're still uh, observing the feast of Yahweh, they're still observing the Shabbat, they're still resting, they're still obeying uh, the dietary laws, too many Jewish things. So out goes that. The book of Revelation. Too many images in Book of Revelation come right from the Old Testament from the prophets, so that's got to go. And I won't get into it de too deep, but it goes on and on. And a lot of Christians hooked, uh, took this hook, line, and sinker to continue observing the literal Sabbath or literal circumcision or literal dietary laws was considered to be foolishness and nonsense. So the church father Tertullian wrote concerning the Sabbath and circumcision. He said, and I quote, it follows accordingly that insofar as the abolition of carnal circumcision and of the old law is demonstrated as having been consummated at its specific time, so also is the observance of the Sabbath is demonstrated to have been temporary. In a letter to Diognetus, possibly uh, written by Justin Martyr, we don't know, but possibly written by Justin Martyr, in the second century, similar statements are made concerning, quote, Jewish practices. As for their, and I'm quoting again, as for their scrupulousness about meats and their superstitions about the Sabbath and their much vaunted circumcision and their pretentious festivals and new moon observances, all given to us by God, I threw that in, all of those are too nonsensical to be worth even discussing. Unquote. These church fathers continued issuing statements which clearly divorced Christianity from anything, quote, Jewish. 
The Mosaic Law, including the festivals and the Sabbath and circumcision and Israel's election by God, were all brushed away as things of the past. Also, in order to gain acceptance of Rome, the now Gentile-dominated church made it loud and clear that it had nothing in common with Judaism. Okay, So we've begun the splitting process. The epistle uh, of Ignatius, Bishop, Bishop of Antioch, to the Magnesians in 115 CE, to profess, now listen here, I'm quoting again, to profess Jesus Christ while continuing to follow Jewish customs is an absurdity. The Christian faith does not look to Judaism, but Judaism looks to Christianity. So he just totally took the picture in Romans chapter 11 that Paul painted to us and clearly flip-flopped it and turned it the other way. If you... Jews want to be part of us. If you want to believe on the Messiah, then everything in the Old Testament's got to go. All your feasts, all your Sabbaths, all that Jewish stuff's got to go. Leave that tree behind. We've planted this new tree, and it's growing big. And boy, have we got something for you. And you better jump on board right now. You better get in early, you know, like a pyramid scheme. Get in while you can, but you got to drop all this Jewish stuff. Now, what's interesting about that is that Right around this time, this is around um, 300 A.D., the teachings of the church fathers managed to invalidate Judaism in the eyes of the Gentile world. Although up until now the Jewish, quote, slash Jewish Christian debate was not much more than a debate, the real turning point for the Jews in the Roman Christian world was the Council of Nicaea, held in 325 A.D. Up to this point, we just have... The Gentile church basically splitting off and starting to do its own thing, but nothing was really documented. There wasn't any constitution, if you would, uh, will for this new Christian church. And so Constantine, who uh, a self-declared Christian, and I'm talk about him in a few minutes, uh, gathered together uh, hundreds of bishops across the world. I might add, not a single one of them was what we would call Messianic. In other words, as the first 12 disciples were. Not a single one of them was. They were not invited. As a matter of fact, if you read the writings of Eusebius, you'll, in his history, you'll see that they had posted dozens and dozens of guards with spears and swords that lined up the entrance to where this great council took place to keep out anyone that was not welcome there. And who was not welcome there? Whether you believed in the Messiah or not, no one with any kind of Jewish background was invited to come to this. So at this council, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman state. And the concepts and claims of the theologians were put into practice and the separation between Christianity and, quote, Judaism became official there. It's documented now. We're going to write it down on paper. And we're going to talk about more of this in a few minutes. Constantine, the emperor of Rome and leader of the church, declared, and I quote from Constantine, You should consider not only that the number of churches in these provinces make a majority, but also that it is right to demand what our reason approves, and that we should have nothing in common with the Jews. So here we have an act of what we call democracy. In other words, we're going to change this because there are more of us than there are of you. And that's basically how democracy works. The majority rules. Then when joining the church, 
a Jew had to renounce, as I said, all Old Testament practices, that is the feast and the Sabbath. He was now a Christian. And so, at this point, the theology is official. In other words, the, the way we look at Scripture is officially changed. The theology has made the big change. And now, Christianity, the Christian church, turns to the Jew and says, you have no right to live among us as Jews. So, as the church developed into the 4th century and became an international political power, it was confronted with the terrible fact that the Jews, merely by continuing to be Jews, threaten the very legitimacy of the church. They concluded that if Judaism remained valid, Christianity would be then invalid. Now, let me give you a little bit of background uh, in this before we take a step further. The background, and this is a matter of historical record as well, you can read this in good libraries and Christian bookstores, and that is the fact that there was a battle at this time in the early uh, part of the 4th century for the kingdom, the Byzantine Empire, we call it now, the area where Constantine ruled, for rulership in that region. Constantine found himself competing with the Caesars and so forth for rule and for power. Now, in Constantine's kingdom, because of the Christianity being now made the official state religion, and many people forced to be Christians, or else they could not hold high positions in this government, we had a clash, a division in his kingdom between what we would call and what the Bible calls the heathen or the pagan practices on in one half, and we have this growing Christian church in the other half. And so Constantine has a split kingdom. And he and we understand these things in in elections today in our country. If we run somebody for president, that's a, a Republican. But yet someone else comes in and also runs for president as a Republican, and the Democrats only have one person running for president, then the two Republicans split the vote. One, at one way, it may be 60-40 or 70-30, whatever. And the Democrat, even if the Democrat didn't get the majority of total votes by the fact that the other half split up, the Democrat ends up winning. And so Constantine knew this, that he was not going to be able to retain power. Again, this is a matter of history in his kingdom. If these two totally different views of life uh, remain separate. So he could not convince the pagans to give up their feast and their festivals and their, their partying, if you will, the worship of, of their gods. And he could not can ever convince the Christians to not believe in the Messiah. So all he simply did, and again, I'm telling you this as a matter of historical record. We're going to read some of it pretty soon. He did a very wise thing in order to make his kingdom one. He simply took the old pagan practices of their worship of Tammuz and Astarte and Ishtar and all their false gods and goddesses and simply retain the elements of those festivals and they did it in the name of Jesus. Practices and pagan festivals at, at the time of the Council of Nicaea and the pagan festivals of Easter and Christmas are now the official documented uh, festivals of the uh, 
Christian church, uh, Yahweh's feast have been eliminated, made obsolete. And quite frankly, what has taken place is Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah of the scriptures, is indeed still in the festivals of Yahweh. Jesus Christos, the, Jesus the Christ of Christianity, that's the name that's placed upon these festivals, and they simply replace biblical festivals. For more on the subjects of uh, Easter and Christmas, there's several sources that you can go through. We won't uh, belabor these things in this particular tape series, but there's a book by Alexander Hyssop called The Two Babylons, which is uh, uh, quite a revealing book with tons of documentation in it. There's also a very small book uh, called Lou White's Fossilized, uh, by Lou White called Fossilized Customs. You can also get, and if by chance or perchance that you think that these uh, publications may be biased, all you have to do is go to encyclopedia.com or any encyclopedia, and you can read all about the very well-documented background of these festivals that have replaced in uh, contrast to Yahweh's warning in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, that we read earlier on, replace the Feast of Yahweh. Well, now that now that uh, we're at the time of uh, Constantine and Judaism is declared an apostate and superseded religion, uh, the Jews have now lost their right to exist. The Jews, however, did exist. And so now the church needs a reason for their continued existence. If their failure to recognize the Christ resulted in their dispersion, and if Christianity had superseded Judaism in light being now being a light to the Gentiles, then why were the Jews around at all? Well, the church concluded that the reason the Jews survived was, of course, to prove the truth of Christianity. They are around they will always be around to be persecuted and wanderers of the earth without a home as proof of God's wrath upon them because they were the killers of Christ. The condition of the Jews was to be a negative witness to their crime of deicide, the killing of God. This was the purpose of their existence. The Jews therefore were forever everywhere responsible for his death collectively because they were a wicked nation. Furthermore, the calamities that befell Jewry, uh, the destruction of the temple and the dispersion, etc., were seen as having uh, Christological import. In other words, they, they pointed to what Christians saw was a just desert for killing the Christ. For instance, Augustine declared that, and, and I quote, the true image of the Hebrew is Judas Iscariot. So collectively, they are represented by Judas Iscariot. Uh, betrayers of, uh, of the Lord. Who sells the Lord for silver? The Jew can never understand the scriptures and forever will build the guilt, bear the guilt of the death of Jesus, unquote. Of course, Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trifle the Jew also said that the Jews should rightly suffer for they had slain the just one and they were called the deicide people, the killers of God. Of course, they, they really did kill God but then God's dead. But the stereotype of these people was transmitted through theological writings, through sermons, and in following centuries, through passion plays and folklore, and the arts began to pick up on this idea of the Jews actually being devils, having horns and, and having a tail and so forth. Christian theologians began to condemn the Jews, accusing them of being uh, idolaters and torturers and and spiritually deaf, of course, and blasphemers and gluttons and adulterers and even cannibals, Christ killers and well beyond God's forgiveness. John Chrysostom, uh, known uh, affectionately, I guess, as the Golden Mouth, 
because he was eloquent in speech, much like we have a lot of uh, those in on the TV today in the nice white suits who are eloquent, uh, eloquent of speech, unleashed a series of homilies against the Jews. And in the late 4th century, he wrote falsely, and I quote, They sacrificed their sons and daughters to devils. They outraged nature and overthrew their foundations of the laws of relationship. They have become worse than wild beasts, and for no reason at all, with their own hands, they murder their offspring to worship the avenging devils who are foes of our life. They know only one thing, to satisfy their gullets, to get drunk, to kill and maim one another. I'm still quoting now. The Jews are the most worthless of all men. They are lecherous, greedy, rapacious. They are perfidious murderers of Christ. The Jews are the odious assassins of Christ. And for killing God, and we are killing God again, there is no expiation possible, nor indulgence, nor pardon. Christians may never cease vengeance, and the Jews must live life in servitude forever. God always hated the Jews. It is incumbent upon all Christians to hate the Jews. You know, I wonder where a lot of the haters of Jews today could possibly get the idea that there's something wrong with them. This was passed down uh, through the church, and it's no wonder why millions and millions of Christians, and there were those who helped, don't get me wrong, during the Holocaust, stood by and ignored this. Chrysostom also argued that the Jews will be crucified throughout history because they crucified Christ. He said, it is because you shed the precious blood that there is now no restoration, no mercy anymore, and no defense. That's it. Send the Jews. Replaced by Christianity, which, of course, has now just been one of the symptoms, replaced the feasts and festivals and the Sabbaths of God. And so, no, in other words, if you're going to replace the people, then you have to replace the ways of the people. And so the ways of God have now become the ways of the Jews, and uh, they've become Jewish things. Persecution and violence... Uh, toward the Jews became common due to heavy restrictive measures imposed by the church against the Jewish people from about 380 to 600 AD, somewhere in that neighborhood, there was a host of rules were passed containing discriminatory provisions against the Jews and the Christian empire. They were summed up in four major rules contained by the great laws of the great leaders of the time. Under Emperor Justinian, Roman law was systemized and codified and called the Justinian Code. And so the church law and doctrine now became state policy. The total of these laws declared that the Jews were no longer allowed to hold high offices or to have military careers. It became a capital offense to convert to Judaism. Now listen to that. It became a capital offense to convert to Judaism, and intermarriage between Christians and Jews was punishable by death. The Torah was forbidden to be read exclusively in Hebrew, and Jews were allowed only a prescribed version of Scripture in their synagogues, and they were also prohibited from using prayers that were seen as anti-Trinitarian. So in other words, if you were praying and worshiping the one God, that was seen as anti-Trinitarian. The keeping of the Sabbath, Jewish festivals, performing circumcision, you know, there was all the things that the scriptures teach, were banned and Jewish property was confiscated. Now, while you've got Christ, the Christianization, basically, of the Roman Empire in the East and West uh, through the 4th to the 6th centuries, there was a giant increase in anti-Jewish legislation, 
and teach and reduce Judaism to a position of permanent legal inferiority. So in all respects, the Jew had to remain subservient to the Christian. Christianity soon began to enjoy a position of superiority over uh, Judaism. In 418 AD, the bishop uh, Severus of Majorca forced Jews to convert. Violent street breaking break, broke out with a mob incited by this bishop. The synagogue was burned and, and the leaders of the Jewish community gave in and 550 uh, Jews were automatically converted or death. St. Jerome, who had studied with Jewish scholars in Palestine and translated the Bible into Latin, wrote about the synagogue, and I quote him, If you call it a brothel, a den of vice, the devil's refuge, Satan's fortress, a place to, de a place to deprave the soul, an abyss of every conceivable disaster or whatever you will, you are still saying less than it deserves. 489 A.D., a Christian mob set fire to the synagogues in Antioch and threw the bodies of slain Jews into the fire. The Jews could exercise no position of authority, and Christianity had to be rigidly protected, rigidly protected from the contamination through living, eating, or engaging in sexual relations with these people. The status of the Jew was basically less than that of an animal. As Peter the Venerable, that Albert of Cluny declared to the faithful, and I quote from him, Truly, I doubt whether a Jew can be really human. I lead out from its den a monstrous animal and show it as a laughing stock in the amphitheater of the world. I bring thee forward, you Jew, you brute beast, in the sight of all men. Unquote. Whether where we get these stigmas from. The Jews were gradually excluded from every sphere of political influence and political rights were increasingly denied. Church teachings such as that of Chrysostom paved the way for the slaughter of countless numbers of Jews throughout history. These are all these are all statements made by church leaders. Now, <laughs> we haven't even got to the Crusades yet. When the Crusaders arrived in Israel at that time, it was called Palestina. They rounded up the Jews in Jerusalem. They herded them into the synagogues. They burned the building to the ground. They marched triumphantly around the inferno and they sang the hymn, Christ, we adore thee, inside the burning synagogue. Well, you don't want to know what was going on inside the burning synagogue. Of course, then, after the church's fourth uh, council held in 1215 by Pope Innocent III, he condemned the Jews to slavery by decreeing, and we quote from him, the Jews against whom the blood of Jesus Christ calls out, although they ought not to be killed, oh, Thank you. Lest the Christian people forget the divine law, yet as wanderers ought they remain upon the earth and their countenance be filled with shame, unquote. Now, with well, that statement, the church settled the destiny of the Jewish people for many centuries. Church doctrine ultimately legitimized the torture and murder of Jews in Christendom for nearly 2,000 years. They were treated as pariahs and became the scapegoats for all the ills of society. People everywhere in all classes were eager, eager to exterminate the Jews through this clerical propaganda. And so we have now begun to enter into basically what we call the, the, uh, the Middle Ages. We're just following the Dark Ages now, and uh, we've entered the Middle Ages now we're going to have a bunch of decrees put out by a series of popes uh, and so forth in the Catholic Church that are based upon some of the things, again, that the early church fathers had taught. Remember, we changed the theology. 
And now this combining of the church uh, in, into the state being the, the, uh, the state religion, forced by the way, now these theologies become the philosophies and the legislation, if you, uh, if you will, of the, the culture and the land and the governments. For instance, another one of John Chrysostom's statements is, and I quote, The Jews have assassinated the Son of God. How dare you associate with this nation of assassins and hangmen? The Jews are the most worthless of all men. They are lecherous, greedier, and rapacious. Now, we read that earlier. And so it is incumbent upon all Christians to hate the Jews. Now, with this kind of theology in mind, based upon this teaching that God has gotten rid of all this stuff and he started something new, and so out goes the festivals and in comes the festivals ordained by the state church, we have a, the councils, a canon number 68, developed from these Terrible things said by the early church fathers. Here's an example of one of them. It says, Jews and Saracens of both sexes in every Christian province must be distinguished from the Christian by a different dress. In other words, we're going to dress them differently now. Moreover, during the last three days before Easter, and especially on Good Fridays, totally made-up days, they shall not go forth in public at all. And so, remember we talked earlier about at a certain point it became obvious that the Jews had no right to exist among us as Jews. In other words, if you're going to be uh, uh, part of the church, you have to get rid of the Jewish stuff and not be Jew. Now we're going to begin to change things slightly and progress and move a little further down the road and would begin by having them dress differently. Millions of Christians came to believe that the Jews were actually not human beings but creatures of the devil, allies of Satan and personifications of the Antichrist. And repeatedly during the Middle Ages, Jews were accused of possessing attributes of both the devil and witches and that they even emitted a foul odor as punishment for their crime against Jesus, and it was said that this odor would only leave them if they were baptized into the church. Christian preachers taught that the Jew was Satan's partner in all his financial dealings, and that he fleeced poor Christians without mercy. And this image of the Jews became part of the Western culture and rendered plausible every accusation against them. Therefore, when, when the ritual murder and blood libel accusations were brought forth as ridiculous as they were, Christians did not question them. Motivated by the belief in the demonic power of the Jewish people, a number of clergymen encouraged the persecution of Jews. Now, let me stop and say just one personal thing. I was, I was uh, sitting talking to, a, to an LDS friend of mine, or acquaintance, I should say, not a friend, but uh, someone that I knew, and... I had known him for a while, and, and he, he finally, this is a, uh, quite a while back, he turns to me and he says, you know, what, what denomination are you, Brad? And you know how that goes, you know, well, what are you? What's your label? we got to call you something, okay? And I said, well, you know, I think to myself, this guy's not going to be satisfied with me saying, I am a son of the living God, according to Hosea. And in that same place where they were called not my people, they should be called my people, and they should be called the sons of the living God. I knew that wasn't going to satisfy him. That wasn't going to do. And as a matter of fact, that doesn't do most Christians that I talk to. You've got to be something. But nonetheless, I began to talk to him about things messianic and things, uh, you know, that I taught the Hebrew language and I taught the culture and so on and so forth. And he says, well, you know, 
you, you, you talk about things that are Jewish all the time, but I knew you weren't Jewish. And I said, how did you know that? And he says, well, if you were, you were hiding your horns and your tail off a well. And so uh, these are not just some, you know, blast from the past accusations about what um, Jews were called back then. These were things that have stayed with a good portion of the church for centuries. It also came to be that conspiracy theories were also leveled against the Jews. Uh, when plagues began to sweep through Europe in the 14th century, the Jews found themselves vilified as well poisoners and sorcerers. Now, one of the reasons for this is because when that black plague swept through Europe, the Jewish people remained faithful to the ordinances of God, and they remained faithful in their kosherness and their, and their cleanliness and the laws of clean and unclean in the scriptures. They knew exactly what to do when someone had a disease. They quarantined them. They separated them out, and they they put in their bodies what they should, and they kept away from their bodies what the scripture said that they're not, while the pagan nations did not do that. Here they are, the pagan nations, even the Christians running around, you know, praying and, and, uh, and, and going to the popes and the clergymen and having blessings put upon them and praying to God. And, well, we'll just take, we're Christians, we'll just pray to God. Meanwhile, totally ignoring the laws of God, the commandments of God, think that they can go ask that same God after they've thumbed their nose at him to do what he said to do according to his word and pray and expect him to answer their prayers when they have totally turned away and rendered obsolete all his words as far as health. And as a result, you know, millions upon millions of people wiped out in this plague in the Middle Ages in the 14th century. And uh, so the Jews, since they... The majority of them survived this because they were faithful. It was obvious uh, to many of the, uh, to most of the church at that time, that the reason why they were is because the Jews were, were were the ones that were the cause of this, and they were trying to kill the Christians. So all these conspiracy theories began to pop out. The negative projection of Jews continued for centuries. Even the Reformation did not improve the situation of the Jews, uh, even though Martin Luther turned away from the Catholic Church. He still drug most of the liturgy. He still drug most of the doctrines of the Catholic Church right into the Protestant Church. And I will quote for him. He says, Therefore, no, this is a quote, my dear Christian, that next to the devil, you have no more bitter, no more poisonous of an enemy than the real Jew who earnestly desires, desires to be a Jew. Now, what are we going to do with these rejected, condemned Jewish people? You must refuse to let them own houses among us. You must take away from them all their prayer books and Talmuds, wherein such lying and cursing and blasphemy is taught. You must prohibit the rabbis to teach. You shall not tolerate them, but expel them. Then he goes on to say, Again, in a, in, one, in a statement entitled The Jews and Their Lies, he says, Verily, a hopeless, wicked, venomous, and devilish thing is the existence of these Jews, who for 1,400 years have been and still are pest, torment, and misfortune. They are just devils and nothing more. This is one of Adolf Hitler's favorite commentators and favorite revered people, Martin Luther. Now, Luther may have divorced himself from the Roman Catholic teaching, but he did not sever himself from his anti-Jewish root and took these lies right into the Reformation. Christendom's perception of the Jew left no alternative but to isolate the Jew from the rest of society. 
This was initially done by forcing Jews to wear, as I said before, distinctive clothing, together with a horned hat depicting the demonic Jew, of course. Then Jews had to wear a visible badge on their clothing. Pope Gregory the uh, the Ninth and Innocent the Fourth uh, repeatedly reminded rulers of Christian countries to pay strict attention to this requirement and to allow no exceptions to the wearing of the badge. And gradually these, what were known as marks of Cain, became a common sight in all of Europe. Their wearers identifiable everywhere at a distance. Jews were distinguishable from everyone else and therefore subjected to abuse. In some places it was regarded as a privilege to pelt Jews with stones at Easter time. Wonderful Easter time. In other places, representatives of the Jewish community were made to accept blows or slaps uh, during the seasons. Another form of isolation during this time was the ghetto system introduced in Venice uh, by the church in, in the year 1516. The ghetto, which is from the Hebrew word get, of course, which means to div- a divorce decree, was a segregated and enclosed section of Venice for the complete isolation of the Jews from the Christians. In other words, get them away from us. The creation of the ghetto was not just to keep the Jews in, but was also, of course, to keep the Christians out. There was finally no other alternative for the Jews except to be expelled. So the Jews in the Middle Ages were expelled from most countries in which they lived, and of course, they did not get rid of the Jews first without instigating instigating what we uh, commonly know now as the Inquisitions. Now, the Inquisitions began somewhere around the early uh, 13th century, 1220, 1230 uh, A.D. The purpose of the Inquisition was to express or to repress an increasing flood of heresies that had been infiltrating the church and, of course, to root out the heretics. That was the purpose of it, so we, so we are told. For the first 200 years, the Inquisitions were mostly directed toward Christians who were regarded as heretics. It wasn't until 1478 that a different form of Inquisition was founded by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain. Do they sound familiar? Columbus? The purpose of this Inquisition was to examine the genuineness of of Jewish conversions. The Inquisitional powers were assigned to a guy named Thomas de Torquemada by the Spanish church, and heretics were to be stamped out first among these Jews wherever they were found. The procedure of the Inquisition began with a period of grace. Okay, here's how it started. First, you have this period of grace. You You have four months. You got four months to convert or leave. Heretics were given the opportunity to come forward or to denounce others known to them, and uh, Jews were denounced for various activities, and they were, in other words, they they were denounced for for smiling at the mention of Virgin Mary or eating me on a, eat me eat meat on a day of abstinence or being suspected of living as hidden Jews. These these are coming to the th- some of the things that they're not allowed to do. Thousands of Jews began to lose their lives during the Spanish Inquisition because they refused to do these things. Many of them falsely converted to Catholicism or to Christianity in order to, to save their skins, if you will. In 1492, 300,000 Jews who refused to be baptized left Spain penniless. They had, they had to sell their property and, and they had to leave. And then, meanwhile, doctrine upon doctrine and law upon law, accusation upon accusation was leveled against the Jew. And he became dehumanized. And so we have, again, this separation 
complete separation, driving out of Jews away from the Christian altogether. The church in the Middle Ages went a step further and secured the Jewish problem for centuries to come. They portrayed the Jew as inhuman and demonic. Christendom can neither theologically or socially uh, uh, tolerate the Jew. And so by the 15th century, you have now basically the Christian church. This is an ugly history, folks. Now you have a progression of theology, now to philosophy, philosophy of the state, which says now you have no right to live among us. So we've gone from you have no right to live among us as Jews to you now have no right to live among us. Medieval Jewish history ended in England in, in the late uh, uh, 1200s, close to the, to the 14th century. We now have what's called the Enlightenment. We have now passed the Middle Ages and we're in the age of the Enlightenment. This is an age where science and reason and so forth uh, took the place of, of just blind faith, if you will. And so Jews in France, for the first time, could become true Frenchmen now because the age of Enlightenment has come. And this required them, uh, of course, uh, to become let's just take France, for example, to give up any vestiges of a Jewish national identity, okay? which is something they've already been used to anyway. Judaism was to be a, re- a religion alone, and it would need to, need to be redefined solely as a religious community of, of believers. And the Jews agreed with this. But now, during this uh, so-called Age of Enlightenment, uh, even though for centuries the Jews had been restricted to living in these ghettos, now, during the Age of Enlightenment, which is probably the good part about it, Jews could actually uh, mingle, and uh, they had this, uh, if you will, this uh, this period where they could actually be among their non-Jewish neighbors. And at this time, this is when things really began to take off as far as technology and understanding goes. It began to replace what was... Uh, come to be obsolete, uh, primitive religious thinking. And instead, reason and thought began to take over. So many of the Jews just went nuts over this. I mean, they flocked to the universities and, and, and began to mingle among the Gentiles. And pretty soon they began to take upon their ways. They began to purge. Now, not, in other words, not, now not by force, but by the, the opportunities that were given to them. They began to intermingle. They began to westernize their religion and their customs, began to mix together. Like, as I said before, these things are all prophesied in the book of Hosea and in, the, in all the books of the prophets of exactly what would happen to the uh, house of Israel, the ten nations, as they were scattered and mingled among the, the Gentile nations. It's not just a religious argument as, as to, uh, to the, quote, Ten lost tribes of Israel. It is a matter of historical fact that these t- things took place. Many times I have people say to me, well, the ten uh, tribes aren't lost. Well, they're not. Well, where are they? If they're not lost, then where are they? Well, I don't know. Well, they're lost. Whatever definition you want to apply to it, they are scattered among and ta- uh, the nations and taken the ways and the customs of the nations, just like God said would happen. It's amazing how right God can be. Uh, it, it totally floors me too. But they had full emancipation. 
and they they began to convert and they became uh, part and they began to get baptized again not by force now but because they wanted to because they could see the benefits of being mixed in with the Gentiles the same thing was true at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes the time we get the festival of Hanukkah uh, as well that Jews began to realize you know every time we are faithful to God and his ways, we get persecuted and killed. And every time we drop those things and do things the way the Gentiles do, oh, then we get all these benefits. And so, hence, this is unfortunately one of the things that happens to the house of Judah too. The history that I'm giving you here is a historical record of what uh, the quote church has done to the Jewish people, but the Jewish people aren't innocent either. We're still talking about people who do not believe in the Messiah and they are no worse off than Gentiles who don't believe in the Messiah. There's no difference between the two. But actually, regardless of how enlightened and emancipated the Jews became, they still were Jews. Uh, eventually, the Jew was seen as the enemy of modern secular state because society's mistrust of the Jew was so deep-rooted that not being able to distinguish the Jew from anyone else became a problem. I mean, really, the only thing you could do about it was do the best you can to completely change your clothes and looks, change your name, and inherit uh, the pagan customs and so forth, and festivals, start celebrating Easter and Christmas and drop all the, the Jewish things. It, it, it was really tough to do, especially if you maintain your name. That's why a lot of them changed their names, and that name change became part of their family for the rest of, uh, uh, of time and, until today that they don't have those old names anymore. The new ideologies of the Enlightenment and their right to be the same were short-lived, but once again the Jews became the other people in our midst, and soon the Jews were living on the margins of society again. Anti-Semitism began to rise its ugly head again, and they um, again portrayed the Jews as diabolical and, and cunning, and they became targeted as a race of conspirators again, and they were once again made the scapegoats of society. And uh, in 1881, the pogroms began in which several hundred Jews were murdered and, and tens of thousands saw their property destroyed. And although there were floods of protests for many parts of the civilized world, the, the Russian government replied that the pogroms were the spontaneous expression of the population's protest against the exploitation of the Jews. In other words, this is just a natural thing that we're doing here, you know, killing the Jews and murdering them once again, all in the name of God. 1901, the infamous Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion were published. They were supposed to be, these were supposed to be documents which revealed a Zionist conspiracy to rule the world. This began long ago. It's not just uh, the things that you're hearing today, but this began over a hundred years ago. The impact of the publication of these protocols went as far as America. And in Henry Ford's paper concerning the protocols and the Jewish question, he wrote, yes, the Henry Ford, he writes, whether you go to Romania, Russia, Austria, or Germany, or anywhere else that the Jewish question has come to the forefront as a vital issue, you will discover that the principal cause is the outworking of the Jewish genius to achieve the power of control. For there is no other racial nor national type which puts forth this kind of person, the international Jew. It is not merely that there are a few Jews among international financial controllers, for it is these world controllers that are exclusively Jews. 
And what's what I, I guess what's so strange about this is that for centuries and centuries now, these Jews have been confined to ghettos. And it's only in, in just a couple of years here where they're talking about where they were emancipated for a little while and allowed to attend universities. And all of a sudden, they become international controllers of all the wealth of the world. You know, and this is absurd accusation. Now, is there some sort of conspiracy that's controlling the world? Uh, yes, there is. Are there Jews involved in that? Yes, there is, just like there's all kinds of other people involved. And to say they're exclusively Jews uh, is absolutely absurd. In Germany, a number of important German intellectuals, such as Her uh, Hermann von, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, Traitsky, William Marr, and the great German composer uh, Richard Wagner, Wagner, with whom Hitler was obsessed, uh, began to write the conspiracy of the Jews to take over German political, economical, social, and cultural life. We'll just make up some sort of evil enemy. And who's the best one to do it? Oh, the Jews. The movement was not religious in nature. Rather, it spoke of Jews as a racial threat. It's, it's not the fact, not, not even necessarily that they observe this and do this. It's just, they're just bad people. The Jews were supposedly among the lowest representatives of the Semitic race while the Germans were the purest manifestations of the Aryan race. It was the mission of the Jews, supposedly, to corrupt the Aryan race. Since their complaint was not with Jewish religion, per se, the term anti-Semitism was coined rather than anti-Judaism, which is really what it is. And this term was first coined by this character named William Marr. So this is, a, this is not a very old term, an anti-Semite. But indeed, what it is is, anti-Jewish uh, rather than anti-Semite. Due to the economic depression and social antagonisms and inferior status of the Jews that had already existed in Eastern Europe at the time, anti-Semitism was much more apparent. Anti-Judaism. In German-occupied Poland, where unemployment was a major problem, problem, it claimed that the Jews were a foreign element in the population who occupied positions that by right belonged to the majority population. So in 1940, the Hitler solution decreed that all the Jews in Germany and German-occupied territory should be transferred to the internment camps set up in Poland where they were left to die of starvation or disease, and the majority of the Poles did not even bat in Ireland. So Hitler's anti-Judaism did not operate in a vacuum. He just didn't come up with this all of a sudden. This is theology and philosophy passed down from the very beginning. And this is the view that Hitler had of, of Jews at the time. Just as uh, the Jews of the Middle Ages were always an alien body within Christendom, representing everything that was, you know, ugly and evil. So the Jews of Germany were an alien body, and they represented everything that was ugly and evil in their society. And uh, so for 16 centuries, the same slogan was preached uh, that was now shouted from every rooftop in Germany, is that the reason for our problems is the Jew. The Holocaust was not just a few SS men following orders for fear of what would happen. They disobeyed. It was much more than that. And it wasn't just the result of peer pressure to conform, but that it was the work of a perfectly ordinary Germans from all walks of life. How is it possible, you might ask, that in a civilized Christian Europe, which is indeed what it was, only 50 years ago, 60 years ago, tens of thousands of Jews were shot in the neck by German policemen 
who apparently came from respectable social backgrounds and were family men. How did they lead whimpering 12-year-olds and sobbing, sobbing uh, elderly women from their villages in eastern Poland into surrounding forests and murder them one by one before tossing them into makeshift mass graves? Somehow, these ordinary people concluded that the Jews ought to die. Their execution, therefore, in their minds was lawful. The evidence that so many ordinary people did accept the absurd beliefs about Jews that Hitler articulated in Mein Kampf, for example, is mind-boggling. The acceptance of these beliefs made ordinary people become willing executioners. But was Mein Kampf any different to Martin Luther's, uh, uh, from Martin Luther's The Jews in Their Lives? Was it any different? No, not if you've read any of those publications. The sermons of John Chrysostom, were they any different than that? Was Eichmann simply obeying orders any differently than the inquisitors of Spain in the 15th century? Was the brutality of Hitler's henchmen and willing executioners any more brutal than those who carried out the orders of the church in the Middle Ages? And were Jews were murdered because of the same accusations but a different motivation? What's the difference? And finally, why did the church speak out when Hitler was ridding the church of the Aryan race of the physically and mentally disabled, but not when they began exterminating Jews. In other words, when they started doing just regular folk who weren't Jews but were mentally disabled, now the church began to speak out. But up until that time, they never said a word. Now, let me add that there were underground churches. As a matter of fact, there were some underground Lutheran churches during that particular time that was helping Jews to escape, that was helping the German, the Jewish people, and, and, and were killed because of it, and were persecuted, and, and laid their lives on the line. But they were few and far between. Most of the people living at that time were members of the Catholic Church who totally ignored this, because, after all, Jews have been the scourge of the earth all along. And so... What's the difference? The spread of Christianity anti-Semitism, again anti-Judaism, being embedded into the Western culture became a great phenomenon. The events of the Holocaust have many parallels in the Christian church. In the early 4th century, the church began to protect themselves from the Jews. They imposed laws that prevented Jews from contaminating the life and faith of the true believers. The Nazis imposed similar restrictions by forbidding non-Jews from shopping in stores owned by a Jew. In the 7th century, the church ordered the Talmud to be burned. The Nazis held public burnings of all uh, literature by Jewish authors. The church disqualified the Jews from holding public office. The Nazis did the same. In 1870, much of Europe had ghettos designed to shut the Jews away from humanity for centuries and made them to wear the same little yellow badges and the same difference in clothing so they could be spotted very easily. Nazis did the same. In fact, every restriction imposed upon the Jews by the Nazis, short of the monstrous final solution, had an earlier counterpart in canon law. As late as 1941, Archbishop Grover, in a pastoral letter filled with anti-Semitic utterances, blamed the Jews for the death of Jesus, saying that the Holocaust was the self-imposed curse of the Jews. His blood be upon us and our children has come true today. This was in the Jerusalem Post uh, uh, about 10 years ago. Now, even though the church had never before suggested killing all the Jews, the Nazis' final solution was a logical extension of the thought of those church fathers and councils who declared God was finished with the Jews. The seeds of 16 centuries of theological anti-Semitism would no doubt continue to produce fruit and is still producing fruit today. 
And fruit of the worst kind it did produce with the lawful and willing slaughter of six million Jews just 60 years ago. So regardless of emancipation and Jewish patriotism, and despite the overwhelming contributions that Jewish people made to the modern world, as long as society continues to define the Jew as the other in our midst, and for as long as there is a Jewish question in due, anti-Semitism's third characteristic will always be defined in full glory and fury. And that is basically, you have no right to live. We have, beginning all this, a theology that says, according to the scriptures, you are done with, the law has been crucified, all your Sabbaths and all your feasts are obsolete and done away with, the Messiah has come to free us from the Torah, the Messiah has come to free us from the feasts of the Lord, and to free us from those Sabbaths, and therefore, the people of that book are also obsolete. And it's been replaced by the church. It's been replaced by the Christians. And if the Jew wants to, he or she can become part of this by renouncing all of the Jewishness, renouncing the law, and taking upon the freedom that they find in the Christ. This is a fact of the church. And so, the theology begins by saying that you have no right to live among us as Jews. As time marches on, they realize that even the very presence of these people in our midst, even though we've shut them down as far as their Talmud and their Bibles and their Old Testament and so forth, so now even the presence of them we cannot tolerate. So they begin to separate them and put them in ghettos and separate them out. And so the philosophy of the church, or the theology of the church, became the philosophy of a whole state of governments, nations, which said to the Jew, you have no right to live among us, period. So they put little yellow stars on them and they put them in clothing and it would be easily recognizable. But over time, now we cannot even tolerate their presence upon the earth. And so now they had no right to live and hence we have the Holocaust. Uh, as I said, did everyone participate in this? No. But this was a very real period in our history with very real ramifications, with death and slaughter, not just because of people who just got rambunctious, but because of a vile theology that begins by simply replacing God's ways with man's ways. And when you do that, the subsequent results are catastrophic. This is because all behavior begins with a philosophy which begins with a theology. Before we conclude, I would like to take just a moment to thank a woman by the name of Luana Fabri. Uh, most of what we have done in this tape is taken uh, from a um, an article by Luana, who has done a lot of research on uh, anti-Semitism, called How Long, O Lord, How Long? And I want to give much of the credit to her, because she has done a lot of research uh, on this, and I have relied on, well, not only her, but many other uh, sources as well. As I said earlier, you can you can find all this as a matter of church history. Uh, the the changing of uh, Shabbat, uh, the day of rest, from Saturday to Sunday, was all done by the Catholic Church, and is very well documented in their own writings that they had the right to do that. And they did that simply because they are the church. 
and this was all drug into Protestantism. And one of the major reasons for this tape is to just to record our part, I guess, if you will, in helping to draw the people of God, the assembly of God, back to their Hebrew roots, back to these roots that we have severed ourselves from, that has created much of the behavior that we have today. As I've said so many times before, we live in a country which, by poll taking, is 92% Christian. Then why do we have any problems with pornography and abortion? and child abuse, and violence, some of the, many of the problems that we have in this country, if we were 92% Christian. I would suggest the reason why is because uh, Christianity for 2,000 years has held a lawless philosophy, or excuse me, a lawless theology, which has produced a lawless philosophy, which produces lawless behavior. Before we go, I would like to leave you with a few scriptures in mind for you to think about uh, as we finish this tape. Beginning in Yermiyahu, that is Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16, we read, Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith Yahweh, and they shall fish them, and afterwards will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are upon all their ways, they are not hidden from my face, neither is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. For I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double, because they have defiled my land and they have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable things. Yahweh, you are my strength and you are my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction. For the Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and they shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things in which there is no profit. Shall a man make gods unto himself when there are no gods? Therefore, behold, I this once will cause them to know, and I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is Yahweh. And in Yermiyahu 18, verse 15, it says, Because my people hath forgotten me, and have burned incense unto vanity, and they have caused them to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths, to walk in other paths in a way not cast up. And finally, I would hope you remember as we leave a scripture that we quoted before we began this series, and it's uh, in Bereshit chapter 12. And it says, Now Yahweh has said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house into a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless you, and I will curse them that curse you. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We praise and thank you, Yahweh, for your mighty power. Until we see you again. Shalom Aleichem. Thanks for stopping by the Solace Radio community and our new YouTube channel. Subscribe to our channel. Share the teaching with friends. Hit the like button. Do all the regular stuff. It helps us rise in the YouTube universe, enabling us to reach those who need comfort and solace. Comment too. We read all comments from the community and try and answer them in at least 24 hours. Once again, thank you for listening to the word. 
We pray you are blessed by the teaching you just heard. If so, check out the links in the description for more info. Talk radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Ponte Vista, Colorado.